So there's a poem I was reading this week, and I'd like to share it with you. It says, In the morning, it's the name of the poem, In the morning. Today, Lord, I have an unshakable conviction, a positive, resolute assurance that what you have spoken is unalterably true. But today, Lord, my sick body feels stronger, and the stomping pain quietly subsides. Tomorrow, and then tomorrow, if I must struggle again with aching exhaustion and twisting pain until I'm breathless, until I'm utterly spent, until fear eclipses any vestige of hope, then, Lord, then grant me the enabling grace to believe without feeling, to know without seeing, to clasp your hand and wait with invincible trust for the morning. Uh, Just a beautiful poem as I was reading and thinking about where we get to is that we, we get to this place where we have this unshakable conviction and, and an unshakable truth that what God speaks to us when all is well. And I love this prayer for us as individuals to think about, Lord, I, I feel pretty good today. I'm unshakable in my faith towards you because it's obvious that you've been good to me. But Lord, would you give me grace for tomorrow? Because when the pain comes back, and it probably will, when the people who are naysayers and are opposed to the things that, that my family and that I and that our church are about, would you then enable me by your grace to again know and trust, even though I can't see it, even though it doesn't seem to be what I want it to be? Will you then enable me to trust in you then? This is a great prayer to me, I think, for the individual, um, but also for the church, because we live this truth out in a community together. And Christ, He loves His church. He truly loves His church. And I ask that we would have the enabling grace of God to turn to Him individually this morning and as a church today and that He would enable us for tomorrow when it gets really hard, when it gets really rough, that we would find our hope only in the person of Christ. And that we would not half-heartedly or not um, flippantly understand that all of the spiritual blessings that God has for us, they've been secured. They're in Him. Would we cling to that? Would we cling to that truth when we're in trouble? I am who He says I am. I can be who He says I can be. There may not be much evidence right now. I'm looking in the mirror and it doesn't look real good. But can I trust that His Word says that He, by atoning for my sin, has secured every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. It's secure. It's for sure. But we need grace to trust in that truth. Because there's many other truths or things or that just pull and yank and get us away from that truth. So I asked myself this question this week. Is we're, we're going to be studying the letters to the churches this morning. And I said that we make a big deal about Jesus. And we should. Because he's the deal. But Jesus makes a big deal about his church. He makes much of his church. Who then is his true church? 
true church makes much of him. His true church makes much of Christ. And Christ makes much of his church. See the, see the relationship there? Well, I started thinking about, well, so why the church? Why is it so important that we get this, that we understand what it is that he's called us to? And Mark Dever writes this, the church itself is a means of grace, not because it grants salvation apart from faith, but because it is God, the God-ordained means His Spirit uses to proclaim the saving gospel, to illustrate the gospel, and to confirm the gospel. The church is the conduit through which the benefits of Christ's death normally come. Do you see that as we talked about this last week, because He is coming, we are focused on that, and God is purifying His church for His coming. But He is, He was, and He is to come. And what do we declare now as a church? The benefits of Christ's death. We have a treasure that nobody else has as a church. We have the treasure. All the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places belong to you, the church. We have the benefits that this world needs. And we are the conduit through which God uses that, uses us to declare the benefits of Christ's atoning death. So this morning, I'm going to go through these four letters um, in uh, the first four letters in uh, Revelation chapter 2. So if you want to turn there, but I'm not going to do this sort of um, line by line sort of thing. I'm going to give us a frame and then we'll see what the Lord um, teaches us from this this morning. So I want to look first at the address. Chapter 2, uh, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. And in verse 8, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. In verse 12, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. And in verse 18, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, "The, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. So each of these four letters, they, they begin with a revelation of Jesus Christ, of himself, reveals who he is, the one who is coming, the one who was, the one who is, is also in himself the solution to each church's specific situation. He begins by declaring who he is before he declares who they are because he wants them to see, and I want us to see this too, that no matter what our situation is, the solution to our situation, to our problems, to our inabilities, to even our strengths, is to say, this is who Christ is. He declares this of himself. 
And I think sometimes when we get mired in the stuff that the world throws at us, have we not forgotten? Have we not forgotten who Christ is? I know that I often do. When I get lost in myself, no, Christ is this. He saved you. You are in Him. You're like this. You're to be like this because of who I am. So do I trust and do I believe that He has secured all of the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Him. So as I was studying this this week, I couldn't help but notice that this, the, these letters to these churches are much like the books of prophecy. So when we read and study a book of prophecy, we see this. Israel or Judah, whichever one you might look at. Israel or Judah, you have broken the covenant. Repent. No repentance, judgment. And yet, at the same time, where there's judgment or separation or, or whether it is that they exiled them, he says, there's a future and a hope and it's found in me and I will secure this forever. Right? Even in all of those prophetic books. These letters are much the same way and they're for the church. Remember from last week in chapter 1, verse 3, the blessing, the promise from this book, from this revelation of Jesus that says, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it for the time is near. Does it sound anything like those, those words of the prophet? Blessed are those who hear. Blessed are those who, who keep. Blessed is the one, is the prophet, the one who speaks it out loud. Blessed is he. Blessed are those who keep it. The time is near. The time is coming. Jesus is coming soon. I believe that. Jesus is coming soon. If Jesus is coming soon, should we not urgently live for him now? Should we not urgently um, reject the things of the world and accept only the things of Christ? As we look at these letters, there's some things in there that we see too, is that uh, the, the called out ones, which is what the church is, called out of the world, separated from that, separated from the world. But what does the church end up doing often grabbing a piece of the world and taking Jesus plus this. Taking Jesus plus my program has got to be the thing. And the world does this to attract people. We must do that too. So we have Jesus plus we have this and we want to add this to it. And in all of these letters we see that Jesus talking to them about um, what they've done well the ways in which they've clung to Him, the ways that they've been close to Him. And then He says, but this I have against you. And it's usually about grabbing something from the world and mixing it in with what it is that the church is to be about. So the church being separated, well, the church being separated because we have a separate message. We have the message, the conduit through which Christ's death are normally displayed, how they're illustrated, how they're spoken. We should be separate, set apart. Those are the things 
that we see in here. So in each letter, it begins this way. And, and now this is, I'm going to give you a sort of a generic thing because there are some nuances because some letters have no uh, commendation. Some of them have no um, condemnation. No corrective action, but I'm going to give you a general picture of how these letters work, including all of those truths. Begins with one, who Jesus is. Number two, what Jesus knows of his church. Number three, what Jesus commands. Then the consequences for disobedience in the church and the reward for the overcoming church. The church is the overcomer, right? Because of Christ, our overcoming Savior. So, in 2.1, he says, Here is who I am. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, he who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Here's what I know. Here's what else I know. I know that your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. I know of your faithfulness. Christ knows us. He knows of our faithfulness. I think that's good news for us to think about this. He knows of our faithfulness. Because do we not often want to plead our cause? Do we not want to plead our cause when it's really hard and we made mistakes and we've messed up and when we are reaping the consequences for our sinful actions we want to plead our cause but God I've done this but God I am this he says I know your faithfulness I also know church I also know your failings but I have this against you you have abandoned the love that you had at first Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. I know your failings. But you notice what he's, when he says, go to the things that you did at first. You've abandoned your first love. That's what he has against them. But what does he remind them of when he begins the letter? He says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write the words of him who holds the seven stars in the right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. You've abandoned me, your first love. I'm there in the midst of you. I am the one who loves you. I love you so much that I'm there with you, that I am in the midst of you, that I am walking around with you. So he reminds them, go back to that thing to the person, to me, whom you first loved. Do you remember when you first were embraced by Christ, how much you loved Him? Do you remember? I do. I remember so vividly that I couldn't wait to hear from His Word. I couldn't wait to be with His people. Right? Wherever the doors were open, where His people were going to be, I was there. And then, get mired in other things. And sometimes, you know, Christ would say to us, remember your first love. Remember that. Remember your first love? Remember the things you did at first? Go back and do the things you did at the first. Right? That's his reminder to the church at Ephesus. 
He says, repent from where you're falling and do the first the thing the works that you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. I will remove the church. So church should be a place where we love Jesus and we love each other. Is that not our first work? Is to love Jesus and love his people. That's our first work. He says, so go back to that first work, the things you did at first, loving me and loving my people. The loving church is because of Christ's love for us and that he is in the midst of us. In the second letter, as he looks at Smyrna and he says to them, And to the church in Smyrna write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. See here, he says, I know your environment. I know the world in which you live in. He tells them here, I know your trouble. I know your sufferings. Not only do I know your successes, not only do I know the ways that you are doing well, you need not plead your cause. I know the ways you're doing well. I know the places in which you have failed. The answer to those things is found in me, in who I am. The church, the the blood-bought church of Jesus Christ who overcomes, they are also those who love their life, not even unto death. They love not their life, even unto death. And he, he gives his description of him for that church that is in trouble, that is, that is being persecuted, that is um, impoverished. He says, these are the words of the first and last who died and came to life. Although this may kill you, you have life in me eternally, forever and ever. Turn your way to me. But here he gives them he gives them no correction to this church that is impoverished. He just says, "Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life." Are we sure? Are we sure that our greatest treasure is the crown of life in heaven? Are we sure that that is our aim? This life would mean nothing to us, right? Not much. Because we have a greater crown. We have a greater crown coming. We have a greater life. He has secured for us eternal life. There is no trouble in which Christ won't be there with us, in the midst of us. There is no trouble. It's all about Him. Point ourselves toward Him. He is the one. And the one who conquers um, will not be hurt by the second death. King James, I believe, uses the word overcomes. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. And who are the overcomers? 
Revelation 12 tells us the ones who overcome are he that overcomes by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of our testimony. It's by the blood of the Lamb that we overcome. Because we have an overcoming Savior. Remember in John 16, he says, In this world there will be trouble, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. By faith in Him, we too are overcomers. He has overcome, right? He has overcome. Our faith and our trust are in Him. And he says, to the one who overcomes, he will not be hurt by the second death. He will live forever in paradise with God. He knows our environment. He knows our sufferings. I know where you dwell, he says to Pergamum. First he says, and to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. I know where you live. I know the hellish environment that you are underneath. I know the hell that you are going through, he says. Yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith. But I have a few things against you, he says. You have some who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give him some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one except the one knows except for the one who receives it. So you see here, he says, you've allowed other doctrines, worldly doctrines, to infiltrate who you are, to infiltrate the church. And he says the answer is in the Word of God. He says, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. The word of God. Does, does, does our life and our environment, does our church, does our practices, does what we allow line up with the word of God? He says, to those who have put these stumbling blocks, these things in your way, these things that have infiltrated the church, who hold to some foreign teaching, that would teach that we can meld. We can meld with the things of God and we can meld the things of the world. There are all kinds of new teachings out there that teach that. That we can mix the world. We can mix church. God doesn't, doesn't operate that way with His church anymore. What He does now is this. Whatever this new thing is. It can be, and, and most often, it's about sexual freedom. God has freed us up to do as we please sexually, so we need not be harsh about that. Well, the Word of God says this, and He says this. To those that teach us those things, right? He says, I will come and war against them with the sword of my mouth. It is with the Word of God that we battle. We don't battle with people, do we? We don't battle with people. We say, well, here's where you are. What does the Word of God say? 
We point them to the Word of God. And we let the Holy Spirit do the convicting, right? It's not on us. What does the Word of God say? And then he tells us that the one who overcomes, the conqueror, will receive some of the hidden manna and will give him a white stone. I love this idea that, you know, as manna falling from heaven like bread and the bread of life and, and, and us who cling to the Word of God, he will give us understanding from his Word. Those of us that are overcomers, we will go back to the Word of God. He knows our enemies. He knows our church's sufferings. He is the solution. He is, He was, and He is to come. Remember, repent, do the first works. He is in the midst of the lampstands. Be faithful unto death. He died and came back to life. Repentance, the words which saved will be a word of judgment. Hold fast and keep Christ's works until the end. He is the rightful judge. There is no justice in Him. He is the rightful judge. There is no injustice in Him. Let's look at the church in Thyatira. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira, right? Verse 18. The words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire, whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love, and your faith, and your service, and your patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until you come. The one who conquers and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And when earthen pothet, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He says here, he shows them, I am the rightful judge. As he describes himself, he says, the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire, whose feet are like burnished bronze. Notice that he's the rightful judge. There's no injustice in him. Notice here what he says. Those who hold to this will be held to account. To you who have not, I lay no burden on you. To you who have not, I lay no burden. There's no injustice. He doesn't lay a burden on you if you indeed have kept yourself pure with him. That if you have truly focused your love and attention and repented and turned to him, he says, I lay no extra burden on you. Just keep what you have. Hold on to what you have been given until I come. Hang on to that which you have until I come. So there's these consequences of disobedience, removal of the lampstand. He wars against those who oppose his word with his own word. He gives us each according to our works that the works deserve, not necessarily that we deserve. 
each according to what our works deserve. Because there's heavenly promise for the overcomer. For the overcomer, he will be given the tree of life. He will be given the crown of life. He will be given hidden manna and a new name. He will be given the morning star and authority over the nations. And you notice this, that he says here that in, in, in the church in Thyatira, he says, He will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. In Jesus' brokenness for you and for me. Because He was broken for us on the cross. Because God resurrected Him from the dead. He takes our brokenness, knits us together in Him. And He says that, that He, just as He received authority, He will give us authority. Well, as I thought about this, these letters, I cannot speak of a letter that I would write to Jesus' church with the same authority, of course, as Christ. But this morning, as I was thinking about application in this week, I wanted to write a letter to our church. And if I were to write a letter to our church, this is what I might say. To the church at Carleton Community, this is Jesus' church. It's He who walks among us. Jesus purchased this church with His blood. He died for our sin, and God raised Him up on the third day. He is the Word made flesh. He is faithful, and He speaks forth the truth of God. And it is the truth of God found in His person. He is the rightful judge. He is the ruler over the kings of the earth. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Further, He knows the world that we live in. He knows that our nation has rejected Him and His ways. He knows all that the world seems to offer us. He knows that all that the world that pulls upon us. He knows the ways in which we have allowed the world to invade us. Where we have acquiesced to the world's ways. He knows this about us. He knows our own personal rejection for having followed Him. He knows the family members who reject us. He knows those in our workplaces that reject us. He knows that in our schools people reject us. He knows our sufferings. He knows our pains. He knows our illnesses. He knows our addictions. He knows the, the love that we have lost when, when, he, when those who are taken away from us. He knows our loss. He knows our pain. He knows our desire to include all people in our church family. He knows our dedication and love toward Him and all His people. He knows our thirst for His Word. He knows our unforgiveness toward those who have hurt us. He knows our slanderous talk towards others who might be in our fellowship. He knows our half-hearted efforts. He knows our desire to be right rather than be reconciled. He knows all the ways in which we've allowed other things to not be center other than Him. 
He knows the ways in which we have compromised the truth in order to be liked. He knows where our love for Him has grown cold. He knows where our hearts have hardened toward Him and toward His church. But we have an overcoming Savior. He became sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. He died and was buried and God raised Him up on the third day. He ever lives to make intercession for us. My questions for us this morning is, will you, will I, will we turn our hearts and mind towards Jesus again and again and again, rejecting the things that the world has to offer, rejecting even our compromise? Will we be overcomers? Will we rid our church of anything that does not distinctly mark us out as God's chosen ones? And if we do compromise, will we quickly repent when it's confronted? When we are confronted with it, will we be a people who quickly repent and say, that's not of the Lord. I turn back to you again. It's only about Jesus. Will we trust only in the Word of God as our guide for faith and practice? Will we live for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness? Will we hold fast to Him in the midst of suffering? Will we be those who remember the love of God that pulled us away and pulled us out of our desperate position? Will our hearts be set ablaze with the love that we had for Him at first? Jesus is coming for such a church as this. He will reward the faithfully repentant church with food from the tree of life, manna from heaven, the crown of eternal life. He will take the broken pieces of our lives and give us Himself and His authority, which was given to Him by the Father. We will overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony if we repent, remember, and hold fast to Jesus Christ. Even so, Come, Lord Jesus, come. And my final question for all of us this. Do we have ears to hear? Do we have ears to hear? That's the church. The church has ears to hear. Do we have ears to hear? Let's pray. Father, now as we quiet our hearts, Lord, would you... Show us um, those things from your word this morning uh, that we are to glean. Would you uh, rid us of anything that was um, not of you this morning? Help us, Lord, to silently quiet our hearts for just a moment and reflect on your word so that we have ears to hear what the Spirit would speak to the church here at Carleton.